Uh, hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today, on episode 132, I'm joined by Dr. Will Park to discuss the October issue of Retinal Physician, including discussion of the iris registry, high-speed cutters, and new steroid technologies for uveitis. All articles that we discuss can be found online at retinalphysician.com. Our shameless plug for today, as it was in the previous episodes, please remember we will be conducting a first-ever online content for ophthalmologists marketing and education course at the American Academy at annual meeting in Chicago. Our course will be Monday, October 29th at 4.30 p.m. in room N136. The panel will include Drs. Usiwoma Abugo, Rahul Karana, Steve Christensen, and Matthew Weed, myself. We will cover it all in that hour. You won't want to miss it. It should be fun and educational. Please, please come and support us. If any questions, you can always reach out to me directly. Straight from the Carter's Mouth is back to discuss the October issue of Retinal Physician. Joining me is Dr. Uh, Will Park from uh, Vitreoretinal Surgery PA in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, Will, good morning. Jay, thanks for having me. So, uh, as usual, this is not designed to be a journal club. This is more a look at kind of the articles which will be available online at retinalphysician.com and we're using them as a springboard for discussion. And, and if you want to read the actual articles, you can find them online. We're not going to summarize them completely here. Um, so let's talk about uh, the first article, uh, which you were actually involved in, uh, which is basically just a review of the published data from the IRIS registry. So I, I actually got this question from one of my former fellows, um, you know, maybe a day or two ago, um, asking about what is MIPS and why do I, and the question uh, this fellow had was why do I have to be involved in IRIS? So we'll give our listeners a little background for them. What is um, MIPS um, and what does that have to do with the IRIS and, and why is the IRIS registry important? Um, sure. Although I'll give you the, my my disclaimer, which is I'm I'm certainly no expert on the uh, the MIPS aspect of of IRIS, and I don't I don't. Uh, uh, there's a lot about the the structure of IRIS that I f- don't understand, quite frankly. But uh, but MIPS is the latest iteration of the governmental um, quality uh, um, clinical assessment that you know PQRS and uh, PQRI. I mean, all these other previous uh, iterations came along, and it uh, in MIPS. It so it's the, just the current way that the government is metricing uh, our care and and it will be increasingly important in rating the um, reimbursement for our specialty and for individual physicians in our specialty. So you basically, you're all, we're all being monitored on a MIPS um, basis uh, by the government. There is one other way that you can choose to be, to be metriced, but I, um, I believe that the vast majority of ophthalmologists, it works better to use MIPS currently. And this obviously it always can change. They can always legislate some new or CMS can dictate some new, um, form of uh, assessing our performance, but it's currently MIPS. And the, um, the advantage of having a, um, a qualified registry uh, is that it, A, it makes, it makes tracking your data easier uh, and feeds the data to the government directly so you don't have to have quite as much infrastructure in your practice in place to, to input the data. But also, it, it gives the the specialty a fair amount of leverage with the government in terms of saying, look, we have this this good, um, broad, qualified data registry, 
that, and we're using it to metric our own outcomes and improve our own outcomes. And you can use our registry to call, I'm talking to the government, we, the government can use our registry to, um, to both uh, fulfill our MIPS requirements uh, for the government, but also to hone future governmental policy, to basically say these are the things we consider to be valuable, these are the, the outcomes we consider to be important, and here's the data behind that so the government would hopefully listen and develop better quality measures that are in line with what we think are important. That's an excellent explanation of something you claim not to be an expert of, but I think uh, all of us agree. I don't know if anyone fully understands MIPS or, or the Irish, Irish no. registry. Um, so anyway, this, this article, um, which, uh, again, the full title was um, Key Insights uh, into a Number of Retinal Conditions, was a subtitle for update on retinal research with the Iris registry. Um, there are four publications at the time of this article being written looking at Iris registry type based studies. Uh, we've talked about a few of them on the podcast before, um, you know, real world uh, vision and, and, and AMD, but Preeti Rao, uh, DME treatment patterns, um, intraocular pressure in eyes getting injections. Then the article you published, which was return to operating room after macular surgery, um, the iris registry analysis, which we actually we have not talked about uh, on this podcast before. Um, two questions for you as someone who was involved first. Um, Pros and as someone who's used the Iris Registry for research and now written paper, I mean, advantages, disadvantages of Iris Registry data from a scientific perspective, and then anything from your specific study that either surprised you or you found that was unexpected. Uh, yeah. So on the, on the first issue, so I, my study and all the others, I think, in this article and in the, the vast majority of the first, I think there have been now twenty studies that have been um, published now, more or less, on um, based on Iris data. The vast majority of the early ones. You could you could think of them almost as pilot studies for the registry. Basically, the, they 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 wanted to kind of get get familiar with and experience with with data mining in in this setting of publishing you know an academic study, and uh, so we basically did these early studies that were meant to develop the the registry's capacity in that regard to analyze the data and to, and to basically um, develop the the question in the paper. Uh, it now, um, as you know, the registry is, I think, appropriately is, is, is formalizing the process of, of analyzing which studies it will go after. And so now there's a variety of ways that you can, uh, you can um, uh, apply to do a study with the registry uh, in order to and then make sure that your, stu your study will have uh, an answerable question uh, in the future and a question that they, can, they feel they can answer and provide some value to the, to the scientific community with it. Uh, the... Um, you asked about strengths and weaknesses, and they're they're true of any registry study, which is of course there's a large number of patients involved, and and that's a strength. And so the this I think the registry will excel in terms of doing studies uh, such as looking at rare complications or rare outcomes in which they can generate large numbers of them, or looking for um, uh, correlations that uh, either have not yet been found or or indicating or or disputing correlations in just large number of real world data. The uh, and the hope and the expectation is that the registry's capacity for um, uh, for analyzing data will continue to improve. So my my ultimate hope with this thing is is that we get to the point where you have a patient that walks into your clinic who has a very specific um, situation within a broader disease. Let's say they have I don't know polypoidal and and some other um, poster segment issue. And you want to know specifically about that type of patient, how they respond to therapy, and maybe there's a few case reports or a small series in literature, and then you can 
develop, you can use the Irish Registry to develop, oh, there are 2,000 patients out there who've had this exact same scenario. How did they respond? That's, that's what I uh, hope to use it for just on a personal basis. Um, but the disadvantages, of course, are that it's dependent on the data entry. And so the uh, errors in data entry are propagated forward in data uploading. And so it, uh, it is not the same thing as a, as a um, multi-center perspective randomized clinical trial, which has much more granular data that has been um, in, input in a more disciplined fashion. And so that is, that's the issue with it, of course. And uh, my study just, uh, uh, I don't think it had anything really remarkable in it, but I just looked at the, the reoperation rates after macular surgery. Uh, so for epirental memory and macular hole surgery, looked at, at the, the percentage of time they had to return to the operating room within a year. And I, and I looked at that and excluded uh, cataract surgery in the ultimate analysis and found that uh, in patients who had macular hole surgery, about 6.5% of eyes underwent a second surgery, and um, the majority of which were a second macular hole repair. And then in the epiretinal membrane surgery, about 5.5% of eyes went, went back into the operating room for a second vitrectomy. Um, the, um, this was kind of split between membrane stripping, macular hole repair, and then retinal detachments. But, but if you looked at retinal detachments exclusively, in both eyes, about 2.5% um, of eyes went back to the operating room for retinal detachment repair within one year. So that's, so that's that one, in, a, one in 40. Yeah. So, I mean, there's some older data. I remember um, back at the 20-gauge era, there was some data about MAC holes, which said the, the RD risk could be as high as 5 to 10%, and people have said that this would be lower in the area of smaller grades of I think that's true here. But 1 in 40 still seems higher than I think most of us would expect. I think that when we're consenting patients to this procedure, um, maybe this is a good number to keep in mind, but um, especially for ERMs where sometimes, you know, macular holes are usually more of a slam dunk in terms of going to the operating room, uh, assuming they're not, you know, you know, asymptomatic or, or super chronic and longstanding, but epiretinal membranes can be a little nebulous in terms of patient symptoms. I think if we all knew that there was a one in 40 risk, maybe that changes our risk benefit discussion when we sign them up. Yeah. And again, this is, this is all, all data for ERM. So if this is a, this is a ERM that's secondary to a uveitis and is, or an ERM in a patient who's highly myopic or, you know, obviously there's, this is, it's not perfectly clean data, but, but you're correct. That's a little higher than I would have expected as well. Uh, moving forward, so the next article we're going to discuss is analysis of intraocular inflammation following intravitreal injection of ILEA, uh, subtitle steps taken to identify the cause and prevent future occurrence. Um, this was written from the team from Regeneron. Essentially, just to summarize, they essentially just explain uh, the mechanism by way they investigate the increase in idiopathic ocular inflammation associated with um, a flibercept or ILEA in you know the last, uh, I think it was last fall uh, from October to um 2017 to January 2018, and just kind of the mechanism where they investigated and systematically, you know, went back through all the lots, figured out what was the common um, kind of factor in the lots that had the higher rate of IOI, and, you know, they can't prove causation, but with correlation, they correlated with certain syringes, um, and based on, you know, changes in the kick composition, as well as just things evening out, that the IOI rate has gone kind of back to its baseline rate, uh, which was historical. Um, you know, this is kind of dry, but I think it's important. It, it's kind of interesting how, again, to look through the process by how they maintain quality control. And, and it, it, again, doesn't imply causation. And there were definitely cases reported in Canada and other settings where the people didn't use the syringes, but were still getting the IOI. Um, the argument I've heard is that there is a baseline rate of IOI, and, and so you still may get it with or without these syringes that were 
deemed to be involved. Um, yeah, well, uh, we'll just talk briefly. I, I think that the only, the really global kind of message from this is again, just like the, there's so much that goes into any of these companies in terms of making sure there's quality control. And there's so many things that need to go right for you know a patient to get a drug and, and have it not cause an issue. I thought it was fascinating just to see the look into how much they, attention each of these companies has to pay to kind of keep the quality control uh, good. And I've always thought about that from a dose perspective in anything, but especially injections, you know, making sure that the right dose is delivered every in each lot of every drug. But besides that, we can see that just also making sure that not only infection, but other issues such as IOI. So um, first of all, any, any firsthand experience with IOI and then um, your thoughts on what we just talked, what I was just talking about. You know, just, I, I, I agree. It's a pretty granular article, but the, the, uh, the interesting thing, I I'll just emphasize one more time, this was written by employees of Regeneron. Uh, but as you said earlier, uh, so it is certainly, um, kind of framed in that, in that, from that perspective, but the, uh, you can, you can almost sense in the article, the, the psyche of the company on this one, which is to say that basically whenever something like this happens and the safety of one of their products is called into question, uh, that, that it's a, it's a pretty big deal and the company has to go through some pretty large steps to, uh, do a thorough investigation and, and kind of restore confidence in the retina community regarding their, their product. And I think they did a good job with this investigation, but certainly you could, you could almost sense the, the anxiety there <laughs> through the article in terms of making sure that they demonstrate that this is a safe product. The, uh, I was, I, uh, I, I've never, I have not seen IOA in this scenario, but I have, I think I have one partner who has, but the, uh, I remember vividly the morning where this, in the fall of last year, where basically the news of this happening all over the country dropped. And just from a practical perspective, when you're a, when your listeners are, are kind of young retina specialists, um, it, this is yet another example of how important it is to stay linked to the broader community. Mm -hmm. Because within the span of, of 30 minutes, I was getting emails from all over the country and, and people were all talking about this. And, and we, that morning, yanked those lots that we had in our clinic. And if I had gotten that email four hours later, I probably would have done a few whole bunch more ILE injections with the, with the lots. So it was just an indication of how important it is for us to communicate with each other as practices. Good, good point. Uh, moving forward, next article we're going to talk about um, emerging steroid therapies for uveitis, uh, subtitled Two New Treatments on the Horizon by um, Komadi Chen and Hari Prasad. Neither of us is a officially a uveitis uh, expert or specialist, but um, again, just or unofficially, to, or if unofficially, yeah, please, I'm unofficially, please, no, no uveitis referrals. Um, <laughs> but um, just they, they went through two, um, you know, phase three study results on local treatments that are currently not FDA approved. Uh, talking about the Duracert, which essentially is a fluosinolone intravitreal implant that can be injected via 25 gauge needle and is designed to last up to three years. Um, actually very similar to Illuvian, which is FDA approved for, for DME, but this would be for uveitis. And the other one, which is the, the clear side, um, superchoroidal triamcinol acetonide uh, injection that can be given in the office. Um, just in advance, I don't have any uh, disclosures for either of these companies. We'll, we'll mention his disclosures in a second or lack thereof. But um, yeah, just essentially just looked at the phase three results, which, which seem to be promising and really no severe adverse events. Um, ClearSide has been discussed for other indications, uh, and the interesting thing is it seems to have, uh, while there is, uh, it doesn't seem to carry the same cataract formation or IOP risk necessarily of an intravitreal steroid. Uh, and then the Duracert, of course, still does have uh, cataract formation as well as um, potential for IOP um, 
uh, elevation. Uh, it is delivered intravitreally, but it does last up to three years. So, uh, Will, just uh, first of all, your disclosures and then in your impressions, um, as someone who's not a UBS perspective, again, just exciting to see the technology that's available here. Yeah, I, no disclosures uh, of any sort for me. But the, uh, the uh, yeah, from a non-UBS perspective, I, actually, I am curious, maybe you can answer this question. I, I have not looked deeply into the, I've heard some some talks on Duracert, but I have not looked deeply into it. I, what is the perceived difference in effect between Duracert and Alluvian? Uh, how are they going to functionally differ for me? Do you know? Um, I, so, again, and I apologize to listeners if this is wrong, because, again, I'm not an expert on this, but... I think um, Duracert is essentially the same thing, but I, I don't think the dose um, or the way it's delivered is necessarily different. Um, I think it's a, a different company, um, and I'm not okay. sure if Alamira um, sold it or remarketed it. Albini, Dr. Albini had explained it actually in a previous podcast, um, uh, along with Sunil Srivastava from Cole, and, and they, they essentially it's... It is, it's, there's no difference, but it's going to be an indication difference for sure. And they're made now by different companies. Um, but from a functional perspective, I wouldn't expect the adverse effects or the benefits from or in terms of or how it functions within the IDV any different. It's essentially the same sort of thing. But again, I apologize if that's uneducated, but that's been my impression. Well, now I'm embarrassed because I listened to that podcast from them and I also can't remember. So, um, but uh, no, that's that's uh, that sounds that sounds uh, that sounds reasonable. And I'm sorry to put you on the spot with that one. The uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting. I, the one thing I'm curious about, and again, this is probably out there somewhere, and I just haven't looked at it, is one they, they comment with the um, the clear side uh, supercortical injection of the of the agent. That it flows posteriorly uh, once it goes in the supracortical space. I know I, I'd like to see if there's any uh, imaging out there of that. Would, would could they do it with a marker on it or something and watch it flow posteriorly in, in through the cortical vasculature? I'm just kind of curious about. Oh, that. Oh, that'd be cool. Like a fluorescent tag, almost. Like if you could tag it. Yeah, I just I, I'm I, I'm trying to visualize that. Uh, whether it's just the, the the lump of it going posteriorly or whether it's actually um, kind of how it, how it moves posteriorly in the choroidal anatomy, but. Uh, that's there's one little kind of brief thing, but no, I, I'm excited for them. I think they both. Any time that there's a new agent available that's easily administrable, that's local, that has a uh, favorable side effect profile for uveitis, I'm all in favor of it. And, and just to clarify, on Duracert, it's made by iPoint. The Alluvian is made by Alamere Science. The dose for Duracert is 0.18 of the fluocin alone. The dose for Alluvian is 0.19. Um, so they're not exactly the same, uh, but I think from again from a functional perspective, um, they're they're essentially similar and i remember the only reason i remember this because i remember albini and, uh, and srivastava when they were talking about it, were joking how if patients got multiple of these over years because it's non-biodegradable in theory you know you could get you know, a whole bunch of these little depots in the eye they're, they're very 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 small um so um anyway to, to, to finish up and um again i'll, I'll clarify I, I do serve as a consultant for alcon though that won't influence my discussion here, but um, Maria Barakal as well as Louis Acaba wrote this article called Ultra High Speed Vitrectomy Colors, What's the Limit? The Future of Vitrectomy Can Be Quick, Safe, and Office-Based. Um, I won't belabor this. I think we've talked in the past about the benefits of high-speed, small-gauge cutters. I find that we'll talk a little about the history. I think the history of, of vitrectomy and uh, cutters and what used to be, you know, the first cutter with the 17-gauge cutter with Mockhammer in 72, I think it's just fascinating. And, um, and then just talking about the technologies that are currently available and uh, well, again, we don't have to talk a ton about the nuts and bolts of the technology, but 
Um, let's talk a little bit first about you know history of vitrectomy because I think it's very interesting. And then, um, yeah. yeah, for fellows now who may be like, whatever, I don't really care, you know, what Mockham were used in 1972. Um, what does this mean from a functional level today uh, for how you use your cutter during surgery? Uh, the uh, so I I well, I was I think the 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 class the few classes in front of me I, I finished fellowship in 2013 so the the few classes in front of me are the classes that really uh, experienced the the mass transition to uh, small gauge surgery and when I was there I think it was it was mostly already 23 and increasingly 25 gauge surgery so I think I missed part of the transition but I still had an experience with. Uh, the I, I have a fair amount of experience with the Acuras machine, and uh, and with I did make a transition from 23 to 25, and I'm still doing some 20 gauge surgery when I was a fellow. So I, um, it, I, I experienced a little bit of that transition, and and I just uh, it it every every iteration of these of these um, vitrectomy machines, it, it just like the article was indicating, uh, is becomes a little safer. You have a little more control in the eye. And you get more confident doing maneuvering that you were not previously confident doing, and and uh, I've I've tried the 27 gauge uh, instrumentation as well, and I find it, that to be true of that too. Although I admit that thus far for me the the margin of improvement is starting to be a little bit less. I don't find myself being that that much uh, more capable of doing new things with 27 gauge than I was with 25 gauge. Although I think there still is a little bit of, of advantage to it in that regard. Um, but I just what I think is cool about the history of the of the of these systems is just that basically they're, they're a series of surgeon innovators who had ideas who had moved forward with these ideas. And then the companies, in collaboration with the, with the with the surgeon, would work forward and and develop the product that that backed up the idea. And there's a great quote from I think that somebody referenced uh, uh, Dr. Isu Tano saying that you, the idea comes first and the technology catches up afterwards. And so it's just a just a kind of a reminder to all of us that if you have a um, good idea and you push forward with it the companies will oftentimes work with you on it and you can do some cool things um you know i'm going to make one brief comment i'm just curious whether you've um seen this jay uh because uh, or you've heard about people seeing this uh, but uh, i have one partner who's noticed this and i've noticed it a couple times too that with the we currently use mostly 25 gauge system on the constellation and we've noticed some uh little bits of debris in the vitreous cavity on um, on post-operative day one, which, uh, and we actually see it sometimes in surgery kind of spitting out from the cutter mouth, whether it's little little kind of fragments of vitreous that the cutter mouth is spitting out into the vitreous cavity. And there have been a few cases where well, on post-op day one, you, they're, they're relatively noticeable in the vitreous. They're not, in, it's not inflammatory. It goes away very quickly, but just little kind of, just um, uh, little kind of like little chopped up bits of vitreous that are floating around in there. Mm. And we talked to the we talked to the um, representatives from the company, and it sounds like the their new um, system with the beveled 27 gauge cutter has uh, some improvement in the in preventing reflux of vitreous uh, back out of the cutter mouth. And we've tried that in in that specific scenario and haven't noticed it with that. And again, it's a very small issue, but I just was curious whether you'd seen that or not. No, I haven't personally. That's that's why I was. I think that's interesting. Uh, I know that it, it's weird because that's different than what they used to describe. If you talk to people back when the, they were first using these cutters, people, people have talked about there used to be metal shavings that would come off the cutter. Uh, they would right. sometimes encounter in the vitreous. Uh, but this sounds different. Like you said, this sounds like it's almost cutting it. So I don't know. You would think that if you're aspirating, it would come to you with the flow. But again, you're creating like 
almost this not liquefaction, but you're creating almost yeah. I, that's very I interesting. Don't know. It, it, the it's, chatter it's definitely not metal. It's 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 biologic. It's, yeah, you know, it's little pieces of vitreous and 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 perhaps part of the issue here is, of course, we're we're quite frankly we're getting so fast with our surgeries these mm-hmm. days that the um we we're probably not pushing as much fluid through the eye as as we used to. Right. And um, so we're not rinsing it as thoroughly. Perhaps I don't know. It's it's a um, well, one, it's of interesting. Th- one of the things the article talks about from a physics perspective, right, is that as you increase your, your cut rate, um, unless you increase your duty cycle, then you're going to um, reduce the flow, right? So you're going to get mm-hmm. less flow. So one of the, if you're using smaller gauge surgery, even with the improvements in that, again, if you're, like you said, if you spend less time in the eye overall with infusion running and with fluid running through the cutter, in theory, you are running less flow if it's using a smaller gauge, 25 or 27. That maybe again you're cutting more than you're actually aspirating the debris that you created by cutting, um, mm-hmm. in theory. Though again, some of the newer technologies that were highlighted here were supposed to reduce this. I don't think it's ever completely gone. I think we'd both agree. For example, if you have a dense vitreous hemorrhage, um, at least with the systems I use, that I, I I prefer in cases where I think there's going to be a lot of rebleeding or, or blood. I prefer to use 23 gauge than 27, for example, just because I know that my ability to kind of maintain visualization and stay ahead from a flow perspective is easier with the 23 than 27. Though, again, I think the TDC cutter and other newer technologies are going to minimize or kind of even the playing field uh, and make it less of a big difference. Let me ask you something from a fellow perspective. When you start teaching vitrectomy surgery to fellows, do you uh, start with a specific gaze, gauge with that in mind? Or do oh, you that's a good question, yeah. So, so I've heard other people say that they like to use uh, like 23 or 25 because it's easier for fellows. I've heard people go the other way and say they like to use 27 because they're like, if the fellow can use to use 27 or 25 without bending the instruments and with good ergonomics and, and good that forces them to be on the edge of the gel, teach some good habits. I don't. So I, I actually determine my gauges in advance of surgery, um, even you know a day or two when I'm planning my surgeries, it has nothing to do with the fellow. I pick what I think would be best for the case, and I do enough of a mix of 23 and 25. I really don't do much 27 like you discussed, that uh, they get a good mix. But yeah, I've never really incorporated that into being like, oh, you know, the fellow wants to do this. Now, if they have a case, and I don't think it matters, then sometimes I'll ask them and be like, hey, you know, we have this RD. I'm happy to do it either way. Do you want to do 23 or 25? Um, and the fellow usually makes a decision and then usually regret it for one reason or the other, um, which is great because that's the whole pa- power decision making is it puts the onus on them to make a decision as a surgeon and, and, uh, and live with it. But um, anyway, um, yeah, yeah, can, I, can I just throw one, um, one more comment out there as a um, and I, I don't um, as, as a as a just kind of, I guess what I would say, perhaps reality check on all of this. Uh, Technology, which is wonderful technology, I'm very happy that we have it. Uh, there are a certain a number of people out there, and um, at least one in my own practice, people who um, still use 20 gauge surgery and mm-hmm. have very, very good results with it. And so it's this is one of those things where you uh, the, the, these are great technologies to have, but um, the it's not there. You can if you if you're if you're a good surgeon and you're meticulous and you and you do it the right way then you can you can overcome a lot of technological disadvantages and uh, and I uh, I I don't think these should be considered a must because I don't think there's ever been any really great data to suggest that they are truly superior in any like outcome perspective. Right. Well, and then similar to like the yeah. clear corneal incision data for cataract surgery versus scleral like you know, large yeah. scleral tunnels, the infection rate is higher or has been shown to be higher in the past with 25 gauge surgery, for example, versus 20 gauge when the first 25 gauge surgeries were performed. Now. 
Uh, part of that, again, is probably people you are not suturing as much. And I think the other thing people have talked about, similar to the cataract surgeons, is that fellows and younger surgeons aren't as comfortable suturing sclerotomies as they were when everyone, every case is 20 gauge, and you had to suture every sclerotomy and suture infusion in place. So, um, you know, the last thing I'll say, I, I don't know if you remember seeing this video. It's no longer available on YouTube. I wish I could link to it. But uh, have you ever seen video of the first vitrector? Like, um, yes. yeah. I mean, it, it, there used to be a great video of Mockermer's either second or third vitrectomy with the 17 gauge cutter. And just to give you, I, it's always humbled me to see them using that thing because that thing is like, it, it, it's it's huge, right? You think about you making a 19 gauge, if you ever use like a foreign body force of this 19 gauge, it's just bigger than that. It's a single port. It looks almost like a FACO handle because it's got the infusion in it. And it's just like this monster rumbling through the, the vitreous cavity and eating vitreous and, and a lot of times other things with it. Um, and yep. just, you know, it's a completely different, I mean, it, they, those guys had, uh, you know, balls of steel, forgive my language, but like when you go into surgery knowing, and those guys were much smarter than me, knowing that your your technology is limiting you is going to possibly cause a lot of nitrogen damage, but still the risk benefit is you need to try something uh, and you're doing it. Uh, you know, we get freaked out, you know, now we, we have one small nitrogen break and then you get, you know, as your fellow, you're like thinking about it later. I mean, that thing, using that thing, the amount of control you had to have, the amount of acceptance of this, the risk of it. Um, really, really impressive. I think much more impressive than anything I do on a daily basis uh, with the tools we have, which kind of spoil us. Hey, uh, when you uh, when you do your your macular surgeries now, do you feel like you develop? Where do you when you see a retinal tear that you, that's uh, intraoperative? Where do you feel like those tears mostly are? Are they adjacent to your trochars? And it depends on macular hole versus. I have, that's a good question. I ha I, I have not found that. Um, I feel like the in those macular cases, um, the, I see those tears most commonly either superior or supratemporally which tends to line up with um, you know, areas in the vitreous space that just tend to have be susceptible more traction as you're doing kind of your, your core and your peripheral shape. Um, I have not noticed many sclerotomy-related tears. Uh, knock on wood unless I'm missing them. But, um, yeah, that, I don't know. How about you? No, I've, I've actually never seen a sclerotomy-related tear with the, with the trocars uh, myself. Oh, never say the, never. I, I, have um, seen, I have seen a sclerotomy-related tear from the trocar, but it's... Um, I'm sure it, they happen. I just yeah. I, I don't think they're very common anymore with with this system. I think that, I think you're right. I think they're they're in other places that are naturally just more prone to tearing when the hyoid's lifted. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, Will, thanks so much for waking up and joining us before your clinic. Um, before we go, um, I would be remiss if I didn't give you a little sports moment. Um, so you're, it's, a, it's a bad week for Minnesota right now. Yeah, Minnesota <laughs> just just got punched in the face by Buffalo. They were favored by sixteen and a half, I think, and they lost by like twenty, which I think was one of the biggest the swings. Like, yeah, yeah, biggest swing ever. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't was, know what happened, but that was crazy. The Timberwolves have an internal feud about whether or not they should trade Jimmy Butler. Um, yeah. And so my question for you is, uh, would you trade Jimmy Butler at this point? And um, if you trade Jimmy Butler, how are you feeling about the Timberwolves this year? Uh, given that you got Andrew Wiggins on a monster contract, you got Carl Anthony Towns on a big contract where he's kind of been up and down, and uh, it sounds like the mood well, is not I, great right now. I'm, can, I, can I tell you, I'm super disappointed in this, mostly just because my claim to fame was that I had dinner next to Jimmy Butler like six months ago, and uh, and I was, I've been bragging about that for a long time. And now that he's moving, it's going to become a lot less important in the community. Well, I yeah, I mean, it's like <laughs> it sounds a lot worse to be like, well, I had dinner with former Timberwolf Jimmy Butler. Now you're just now you're really reaching. This is like 
you, yeah. That, that, well, that, I, like, I like you said dinner dinner with, where I was at, really I was at a table, uh, you know, ten feet away, trying to get my kid to stop throwing food on the floor. <laughs> but uh, but I, nonetheless, I appreciate you uh, saying that I had dinner with Jimmy Butler. Good dinner with Jimmy Butler. Yeah. Yeah. But I I don't know the mechanics of the of the way trades work, but I, my understanding is that if he, that he's a, in a year he's a free agent. So if we this is this is that moment to get something for him, and uh, and it sounds like he doesn't want to be there. So I think they. I guess they have to move on, uh, and uh, I, I do worry about that team. That's an interesting team with a lot of uh, um, a lot of weird personalities. A lot of a uh, lot of is... former Chicago Bulls. <laughs> oh uh, yeah, like half of, the roster. Very very old Chicago Bulls, <laughs> former Chicago Bulls, uh, and uh, that West is that West is intimidating. Man, I don't think it's going to be a very good year. But um, I I, I, I want to restart. I want to reset it and get rid of them and do something. The Vikings going to do damage this year, or what's the real Vikings team? The team that it's just a bad game. It's a bad game. They, uh, you know, it's what happens you turn the ball over twice within your, you know, in the first, in the in, in within your own twenty yard line in the first quarter. Uh, but uh, no, they'll be they'll be good. You know, they're they're going to lose the Rams on Thursday because that's that's the Rams is, the Rams are intimidating and it's only four days away. But but I feel good. I feel good about the Vikings this year. Okay, so don't hit the panic. But they'll be one so. two and one if they lose to the Rams on Thursday. People might be starting to hit the panic button a little bit because they should have won that Packers game and. Absolutely yeah, but the NFC play. North is a little bit of a mess, so I'm I'm not sure we're that uh, we're in that back. much trouble. So yeah. I, uh, I think I think we'll be okay. Perfect. Well, uh, Will, yeah. you have a great morning. Thanks for joining us, and I'll talk to you soon. All right, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Take care. Bye. As always, you can find this episode and all prior episodes on our website, RetinaPodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A Podcast.com. All 131 episodes, including this one, can be found there, sorted by category. Uh, these episodes are designed to be listened to again, and, and they're supposed to be kind of uh, timeless, educational. Obviously, there's certain things that may become dated over time, but for example, I had a, a carotid prosthesis vitrectomy case this last week, and I went back and listened to Dr. Mina Chung talking about it in one of our episodes, and really took a lot from the tips and tricks she said, because sometimes you'll forget what someone said, and it may be something useful to apply to your patients or your clinical care. Uh, our most recent blog entry, and our blog is Equal Rounded Reactive Lessons from Our Pupils. It's up on the website. And it's about our favorite episodes from the first 130. So everyone on the team kind of chimed in with their top three. Um, so on the website, just remember, you can always contact us by clicking on the contact us link on our website. You can email us at retinapodcast.com. We're on Twitter at retinapodcast. Feedback is the lifeblood of what we do. Uh, you can always give us feedback on things we can do better, things we're already doing well. And episode ideas, we always try to execute listener episode ideas if they're feasible. And we also appreciate anyone subscribed to the iTunes or Google Play. Positive comments in the form of a review. Many thanks to Dr. Will Park for discussing these articles with me. Thanks to Jennifer Ford and the team at Pentavision for giving us the retinal physician articles in advance for review. Thanks to Dr. Louis Kai, Mike Minacasa, and Angela Chang for producing a great episode. Listeners, thank you for what you do on a daily basis, the patient care you provide, the articles you read and publish, and the conversations you inspire. This is Jay Schreeder signing off. Good feeling. This is straight from the cutter's mouth. <laughs> <laughs>